0: Uh, We are going to continue through Mark. We are in Mark chapter 11. So once you turn there to your copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 11, we're going to read verses 12 through 26, if you would. Stand with me as we read that. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 12. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. But he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is written, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to gather together to just reflect on the goodness of our Savior. Reflect on his lessons that he taught. And Father, I pray this morning that as we seek after you, that you would speak to us, that you would open your word to us, and illuminate through your Holy Spirit the truth that you desire us to hear. So we come before you with humility and ask, Lord, would you teach us? And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. It seems like it's been forever since I've been up here, it's been like two weeks. That seems like a long time to me. Um, I was reflecting on this text and uh, started thinking about something that I found was a little humorous. So I checked with my wife and she completely agreed. I said to her, there are a couple of words I say, that, whenever I say them, they, they strike fear in you. Do you know what those are? And she guessed it right on. So I've been thinking, or I have a plan. I always have a plan. I always have a plan when it comes to finances, when it comes to uh, physical fitness, when it comes to uh, church, when it comes to whatever it is, automotives. I always have a plan. And it seems like in that context, I want to approach this story because as we'll see when we get through it, um, the Lord has been really teaching me over the last few weeks about my plans. And so we, we come to this text, and there's so much in this text. I want you to kind of put in perspective the context of what's going on. So we are actually going to finish the book of Mark uh, uh, Easter Sunday next year, okay? So we've got like, what is that, I don't know how many months, my math stinks, we have four weeks off in in December for Advent, but um, we are on Monday of Jesus' last week on earth, and we're going to cover the rest of the week up through uh, Easter next year, so put that in perspective, and by the way, by the end of today, we'll already be through Tuesday, so uh, just I- interesting thoughts. Um, so Mike shared with us last week a text that we don't normally preach on in uh, October, the triumphal entry, um, but as we go through our text, we just go through as, as this, the beauty of preaching verse by verse is you just get texts at random times of the year sometimes. And, and so here we have this, uh, this story of Jesus coming, and I, and I want you to recognize how significant that is, that Jesus enters in as Passover is approaching. He comes on Sunday, which would have been the 10th day, which would have been the day where the lamb is presented to the high priest. Jesus comes marching in to present himself as the lamb to be sacrificed. Over and over again, we 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 can read about that idea, the concept, the Lamb Selection Day from Exodus chapter 12, and and Jesus presenting Himself as the Lamb spotless uh, before all, and 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 Peter references it, and Paul references it in First Corinthians 5:7. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you uh, really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And Peter references it in 1 Peter 1.19. But with the precious blood of Christ like the that of a lamb without blemish or spot. All of this being brought to fruition as the fulfillment of prophecy from Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham is talking to his son Isaac and he says to his son Behold, God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. One incredible thing when you start putting all of this together, and and so Jesus comes in on this incredible march into the city, he goes into the temple, and, and essentially fulfilling prophecy, he takes stock of everything, and then Luke tells us that he then looks at the city and begins to weep. This is the heart of our Savior, that he looks around the city, he sees what we're going to talk about this morning, and he begins to weep. And then we're told that he leaves the city and he returns to Bethany, probably going back to the home of Mary and Martha who lived in Bethany. And then on Monday morning, he sets out early in the morning again for Jerusalem. And that leads us to our our text. And we're going to go through this verse by verse. And it says in verse 12, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. number of things going on here. We see the humanity of Jesus, that it tells us that he was hungry. He had left probably early in the morning, didn't have time for breakfast, whatever it might be. And he's on his way into Jerusalem. And seeing in the distance, it says, and, and what that tells us is that it was probably not, it was, it was uh, probably along the roadside, not in a grove. Or, so it was probably not anybody's personal fig tree. But he saw it in the distance and he saw leaves on it. And Mark tells us it was not the season for leaves or for figs. It was probably most likely springtime, and figs in in that time, of uh, in in that culture, culture, it it doesn't matter what culture it was, in that place, it would have been more likely that figs would come around September. So it wouldn't have made sense that there would be figs there, but it had leaves, and you need to understand that leaves on a fig tree indicates figs. So Jesus comes up to it. He inspects the tree, we're told, which I find a little bit uh, uh, humorous in my own opinion. Because uh, this is Jesus, right? Don't you think he would already know whether it had figs on it? I think there's a reason for it. I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus is inspecting this because he was planning a teaching moment. In fact, we're told in verse 14, his disciples were listening. This is a a solitary moment. Jesus by himself, he's inspecting it, and then he goes through this whole thing where he doesn't find the figs, and he curses the tree, and it tells us that the disciples heard it. I'm convinced that he made sure they heard it. I think it's a teaching moment as time is drawing to a close. You realize that at this point, Jesus only has 47 days left on earth. He's got... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four days before his crucifixion, three days in the tomb, and then it says that he spent 40 days post-resurrection with his disciples. This is an important moment for Jesus as he's looking at these men who are going to be responsible for the leading of the church and wants to make sure that in a few days they're going to be in utter chaos, and he wants to plant an important lesson in their hearts and minds. Jesus curses it, we're told. Seems unreasonable to me at first glance. You know, I mean, it wasn't the right time of the year. Why would he curse it? I mean, seems a little harsh, don't you think so? No one may ever eat from you again. I think it's important. This is the only miracle that Jesus produces in the New Testament that has a negative effect. And I think it's important to note that the reason Jesus curses it is not for a lack of fruit but for a false pretense. Because the leaves were there. They were present, and that is indicative of fruit. And so it was essentially false advertising. And when he approaches it and it's not there, he's saying, you are false advertising. You have the leaves, but you have no fruit. And this whole thing, all of these stories, these three things that we're going to kind of walk through together this morning, are intertwined as an important lesson from the Lord days before He goes to the cross. Because this whole thing is a parable. It's a picture that Jesus wants to point out. Why would Mark record this kind of odd story about a fig tree that doesn't have uh, fruit but it has the leaves? It's because in a few moments as they approach Jerusalem, they have a vivid picture before them of a fruitless religion in a fruitless place that tried having all the leaves and saying, this is what we have. But there was no heart, there was no fruit, there was no reality. And so the tree becomes a vivid, visible proof of Israel's spiritual condition. So it says in verse 15, They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And we're going to look at that. But I want you to understand what the temple would have been. If uh, the book of the seven wonders would have been written, most uh, scholars believe that the temple would have been included if it would have been written at that time. The temple was a 35-acre property of immaculate beauty with marble everywhere and gold, and, and, and it would have been an incredible place to see. In fact, we are told that later on, the disciples, when, when looking at the city of Jerusalem, would proclaim to Jesus, what do you think of all this? And, and how amazing it would have been to see the, the incredible beauty of what was going on, but like the tree, the fruit wasn't there. And Jesus responds, we're told, by cleaning house. This is actually the second time Jesus has gone into the temple and cleaned house. I bet you didn't realize that. In John chapter three, we're told that right after the wedding, at the beginning of his ministry, the the mer- turning the water into wine, it tells us that Jesus goes into the temple and he makes a cord of whips and he drives out all the oxen and all the animals. This is the first time Jesus does it. So he does it at the beginning of his ministry, and now he does it at the end of his ministry. There is Could even be debate whether he did it a third time, because in Matthew we're told that he does it right after the triumphal entry, and in Mark we're told he does it the next day. So it could very well be that Jesus did it three times. These guys couldn't get in their head that Jesus was saying what they were doing was wrong. But he goes in and it says that he, he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And in the process of all of that, it says, and he was teaching them through it. The response of Jesus and some context, you remember it's Passover time, so you have Jews coming from all over the world. And, and many Jews who had traveled a long ways, they wouldn't have brought their lamb or their animal to sacrifice with them to that whole journey. It would have been much easier to just come and at the temple purchase a lamb because the last thing you'd want to do is travel hundreds of miles, bring a lamb, and then it'd be found to not be uh, worthy of the sacrifice. So why not just buy one that's been pre-approved at the temple? But the problem was that when they get there, they couldn't use their Roman coins because they had Caesar's inscription on it, and so they had to exchange it at the temple for shekels, which would have been the, the coins that they could use within the temple. And the problem was this, that inside there, the exchange rates were ridiculous. They would charge them exorbitant fees to exchange their money. And, and then after they had purchased their coins, they would go and purchase an animal that would be marked up double the price of, of the convenience because of the convenience, right? And, and it's kind of like when you go to a, a stadium, a, a ball game. You go in. They've already got you to pay to come in. And then they charge you $10 for a hot dog that you could probably buy for a quarter at the grocery store. And then to top it all off, it says those who sold pigeons and pigeons and doves were the, were the, the animal provision by the Lord in the law for the poor. And so they were uh, extracting all of this on top of it from the poor. And you know from, from the word that God is, is the defender of the poor, that he, he sees all of this going on. And you can imagine the outrage of God. And you can imagine the outrage of Jesus in the moment seeing all this, his people being taken advantage of. This was, it was, I mean, you have to, this this relates so well to some of some of the traditions of, of the, the the church when it became so corrupt and and filled with with uh, uh, financing that, that they would sell indulgences in order to build Saint Peter's Cathedral. And all of this, this, this taking advantage of the poor, what Martin Luther became so outraged by was the fact that he saw his people being, being taken advantage of in the name of religion. Because a good Jew would have understood that they had a responsibility to the law to go through the Passover as part of their religious practice. And to not do so would have been, would have been a very uh, a negative thing. It was, it was their very way of life as, as, as a religion. And then to come here and to be found that the people were taking advantage of them. And what Jesus is most angered by was all being done in the temple. It was being sheltered and approved of by the priests. So Jesus cleans house, he overturns the tables, the chairs, he takes up the cause for the poor, and he teaches them. And what he teaches them is an incredible moment. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I want you to note a couple of things here. Number one, he says, my house, here the temple. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. It is the temple here, but as we know as believers that that has transitioned, that the temple is now the church. It's where the body of believers gathers together. In fact, we're told in Ephesians uh, chapter 2 that that, uh, as the building is built up with believers, that is where the Lord dwells. But even more so, even more specific, the temple of God is also the believer." Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you are the dwelling place of God? So he says, my house. But not just that. He says it shall be called a house of prayer. What are we to be doing in the dwelling place for God? Prayer. Prayer is the original intent of the temple. If you look in, in First Chronicles where, uh, uh, Second Chronicles, where Solomon builds the temple, he gets it all finished, he dedicates the temple, and the Lord appears to them to, to acknowledge their dedication, and, and the Lord says to them, This place I shall set my dwelling, and anyone who prays here, I will hear their prayer, I will heal their land, if my people would but humble themselves. And pray to me, I will answer. It's always been the intent of God's temple to be a place of prayer, a place where prayer happens, a place where not just prayer but also worship. But why? Why prayer? Why so important? Because prayer is our confession of our dependence upon God. That's why the people came to the temple, because they needed God, because they recognized that in their lives there was a void of control, a void of of anything outside of God helping them. And then Jesus says, but you have made it a den of robbers. In other words, you have made it a shelter for criminal and immoral activities. So Jesus goes through, he, he overturns everything, and it says, then the chief priests and the scribes heard it. This is the first time in Scripture that the chief priests and the scribes are mentioned together. Two mortal enemies suddenly have one common enemy, and they can join together, collude together. They have one common enemy. And I find it amazing that Jesus does not hate them. He never did. Uh, as you look through the Word, Jesus never hates them. He didn't hate the people. He was trying to correct them in teaching. He was, he was not angry with, with to the point that he wanted to punish them. He wanted to correct them. In fact, I believe Jesus loved Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. I was uh, looking at some stuff and I found it interesting that in Matthew we're told that uh, uh, Jesus heals a leper and he tells him, hey, when when you're healed, you need to go into to see the priest and present the offering prescribed by Moses in the law. I wonder how many times that was fulfilled in history. I wonder how many times there were lepers healed. But yet, back in the law, in Leviticus chapters, uh, what is it, 13 and 14, uh, there is prescription for a leper being healed to go and present himself to the Uh, priest that he has been cleansed and I'm convinced that God Almighty wrote those for Caiaphas and Annas as a testimony to the power and virtue of Jesus to fulfill the law. Jesus wants to correct the shelter of sin in people's lives and, and I think we could pause here and just ask a couple of questions. Number one, what would Jesus want to overturn in our own church here? If we were to stop and and examine our our church and and what we're doing and how we're doing things, I wonder what would Jesus want to overturn? He wants to correct our behavior in order to present him as holy and just. He wants to do those things because he loves us. But not just our church, what would Jesus want to overturn our own lives? In our individual lives, what would Jesus want to overturn? What would he say? You know what? You are sheltering sin in your life. It goes on to say, and when evening came, they went out of the city. It must have been dark because there's no mention of seeing the fig tree. But Monday comes to a close, and on Tuesday morning, verse 20, it says, they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter sees it and he's like, hey, I remember what Jesus said. Rabbi, look, the fig tree, it's completely withered. It's it's all shriveled up. He's shocked. I mean, you would think that after all that Peter has seen with Jesus walking on water, calming storms, healing people, you you would think that he wouldn't be so shocked, but he is. And Jesus looks at this, and he takes an opportunity to teach. He takes an opportunity to teach them this incredible moment. This is the most important part of today's message. What is Jesus going to teach them? He's got three days before his crucifixion before these men that he's leaving behind uh, are going to have their world completely turned into chaos, what do you think is so important that Jesus would want to teach them these last days? This, by the way, chapter uh, Tuesday, is the, we have more details about the teachings of Jesus on this one day than the rest of Jesus' life. There's more said about what Jesus teaches on this day. So what's the message? Rabbi, look, the fig tree is you have cursed is withered. And Jesus answers them. And here's the lesson. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. It's the root lesson. He's going to say in, in, a, in a couple of nights, he's going to be gathered with his men in the upper room, and he's going to say to them as they begin to, he senses their hearts trembling. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. Believe in God. What does that mean? I want to go through this a little bit painfully. But the tense of this, I'm sorry, the, 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 the Greek wording is so important. It is a present imperative. What does that mean? It means it's a command. It's a command. Have faith in God. That is a command. And the tense for it is the perfect tense. That means constantly. It's a lifestyle. Have faith in God continually. Live your life in such a way that you have faith in God and there is also no definitive article in it. So what that means is it's not the faith. Have the faith in God or the faith of God. It just says, have faith in God. That is important because I think we need to understand that there is a difference between it's not the doctrine, but dependence on God. It is a necessity. It is a faith that rests in God through knowing Him, and that only happens with communion with Him, which Jesus is going to tell us is equal to prayer. Let's deal with this mountain first, because if we understand, if we have faith in God, which equals dependence upon Him, He tells us that you will be able to pray and say to the mountain, be moved. Now, this is a rabbinic saying. I want you to understand it. It's not literally uh, moving mountains necessarily, but it comes from Zechariah chapter 4. It is a rabbinic saying that basically means impossible circumstances. That when you are in impossible circumstances, whatever they might be, and brothers and sisters, is this not the reality of life that we live in impossible circumstances, difficulties that we cannot accomplish on our own? And Jesus says, if you have faith in God, if you have dependence upon Him, you can move them. But I want us to understand it's not us moving them. They can be moved. How do you do it? Through prayer, he gives two more commands. He says, Believe, number one, believe in your mind and in your heart. Do not doubt. Is this a prosperity gospel message, right? If I want a Ferrari, I just pray and believe in all of my heart that I'll get a Ferrari. And I'm just going to go do that. Actually, when I was in school in Minneapolis, I got a piece of mail that told me that if I ordered this magic prayer rug, I could pray. And it literally said, whatever you want, if you want a Lamborghini, you can pray for it and God will give it to you. You just had to order this magic prayer rug for 1995 plus shipping and handling. Is this a prosperity gospel that Jesus is teaching that if you would just believe and not doubt, you will receive it? And by the way, I've heard so many people who have said, well, my faith isn't strong enough and that's why I didn't receive it. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because the reality here is that what God is saying is always in the context of the Father's will. Jesus prayed this way. Jesus comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he is in so much strain that he is pouring out drops of blood. And he says, Father, I don't want to die. If you can find another way, yet not my will, but yours be done. God always teaches us that we can ask with the context of the Father's will. And the context here is about faith as relying on God through prayer. Not about the power or the strength of your faith. It's not faith in faith, but it's faith in God. And he closes by saying, not just believe, but you must forgive. If you come to the Father, having been forgiven so much, you don't have communion with Him if you are not willing to forgive. Others. If you are coming unwilling to forgive when you know his forgiveness, how can you expect to have communion with him? So how does all of this tie together? I think it's very uh, amazing when we stop and pause and think about this. That God, through Jesus in this moment, is teaching his disciples who would soon be without, a, uh, without his physical presence. That they would need to depend upon Him. And that to not depend upon Him would be a fruitless venture. Dave read for us this morning from John chapter 15 the words of Jesus in that upper room. And he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you'll be filled with fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's what was going on in the temple. The temple had become void of God. It had become religious. And it had been filled with greed and hypocrisy and and all kinds of sin. And it had the, the beautiful outward appearance of good things. But inwardly, it was empty and void. And then the disciples get this visual illustration of a a tree looking and appearing out of season to be ready to, to, to give forth fruit. But when they get there, they find, Jesus finds that it has nothing. And then it shrivels up and its ministry was worthless. So what is the application of all this? It's dependence on God. Have faith in God. God has been teaching me a lot about dependence lately. Monday, October 7th, I made a prayer request to God on the way to to get some supplies to work on on my pasture fence. My cows have been getting out, and uh, it's super fun. I like to say that because it makes me sound like I'm a farmer. (laughs) I have two cows, they're stubborn. And they like to walk over the fence and break the electric fence, which begs the question why doesn't it work? Which means I'm not a good farmer. So I'm driving to Menards and I'm like, hey, God, you know, we've had a lot of difficulties this year with different things. I had plans, right? I said, I have plans. I had plans to do various things to update some things around our house. I had plans to, to, to I sounded like the guy who was, you know, the, the story that Jesus talks about where he says he built bigger barns and stuff. I had plans to build a barn, uh, all kinds of things, and those things just kept falling by the wayside. And I just got to a point where I just said, Lord, you know what? My plans are not very good. Um, I want to depend on you. Would you just help me to depend more on you? And this is what I pray, and those are the exact words. God, would you help me to depend on you? And he did, very quickly, very, very quickly. I got home, went to the pasture, and I was driving T-posts in the ground with a T-post driver. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a cylinder thing. It's about 20 pounds, and you... Sit there and you bang it until the T-post gets driven in the ground wall. And one of them, it came up too high. I've had somebody ask me, how in the world did you do this? I don't know. I hit myself on the head. I staggered, fell down. I got back up and I finished the job, okay? I'm just saying. Finished driving the post in, tied the fence up. And then I just felt like I was my head was tingling. So I was like, all right, I probably should go back and at least let Steph know in case I pass out here. So I, I got back in to the house, and I said, hey, I, I, I hit myself on the head, um, I'm going to take a shower, and then we probably should go to the ER. So we we get to the ER, and um, because it was a compression injury, they they said, we're going to do a CT scan of your head and your neck, and so they did the CT scans, and about um I don't know, maybe an hour later, uh, they came back out, and they said, hey, there's no skull fracture. That's really good. There's no bleeding on the brain. It's good. Um, but I hate to be the one that tells you this, but um, how's your health? How are you, how you feeling? Is your neck okay? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And um, the doctor says, well, we, the radiologist found uh, several lesions on your neck that um, are often consistent with blood or bone cancer. It's like, oh wow, that's uh interesting. And so uh they said, we're gonna draw some blood, we're gonna do some blood work right away, we wanna kind of figure out what's going on. And um that was fun because the ER was so full that Steph and I didn't even have a room, so we're sitting in the hall with no privacy people. And I kept telling them they need to knock on my curtain, you know, when they come. And uh blood work came back and uh everything. They didn't tell us anything, of course. They just said, hey, uh, you need to schedule up a follow-up appointment with your doctor. And so we scheduled up an appointment for Monday the following week. I texted my brother-in-law. He's a doctor. And I said, hey, this is what they they said with the report, the test results. And he goes, well, that's good. At least they can rule out leukemia. I was like, oh, (laughs) I didn't know that was on the table. But um, they're going to order a whole bunch of tests. So we went in Monday. And in all of this... I'm starting to realize that, that I really have no control, no control. So I get in Monday. They ordered six more tests, and, and I, I feel like I've given more blood to them than BioLife. And um, test results came back on, like, Tuesday, and uh, everything came back normal. Um, so we're grateful for that. But we still don't know what's going on. And I have a whole body bone scan next Tuesday that'll take several hours. And I don't I don't even know what exactly that looks like. And in all of this, I've been, I got angry at God. I said, this is the most physically fit I've been since high school. I was actually bragging on myself. I was like, I ran a mile in under seven minutes the other day. And what I'm finding is. I don't have a plan anymore. I don't have a plan anymore. Through all of this, you, you, you hear something like that. I actually told my wife the other day, I was like, man, I almost wish that I hadn't gotten a concussion because then I wouldn't have known about this. Oh, and that's the other part of it. I did get a concussion, had a headache for about a week, but I'm used to those. Um, uh, but in all of this, I'm realizing that I literally have zero control. but to have hope in God, have faith in God. It it literally means to depend upon him for everything. And I I started examining, you know, I I started thinking about this, and I reminded myself, you prayed and asked God to get you to be more dependent on him. And and literally within hours he was, and, 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 and what it comes down to is a removal of all and any hope in my own strength and abilities. If we want to accomplish anything from the, for the Lord in this life, we have to remove any and all hopes, in my own strengths, my own abilities, whatever gifts that God doesn't need your gift to accomplish his ministry. He chooses to use them various times, and, and, and he gives you those gifts so that they can be used, but he doesn't need them. We are, I should say I am, but I am probably, I I hope I'm not the only one. I am a control freak of my own life and my ministries. I have to control how things go, and I have to function, and it has to be my plan, and I have to do it this way. And I have to do, we, we have a society that is so controlling over every aspect of life because we think we have this vain illusion that we somehow have the power to control things. And the reality is, we don't. And the minute that is stripped away is a minute of freedom. Because we can realize that dependence on a God who f- knows far greater and far wiser than I am controls all things. We become fruitless when we try to produce on our own. As Dave read, apart from me, you can do nothing. And what I love about this text the most is it is truly the beauty of the gospel. We wholly need Him, and He has provided. We wholly need Him. Have faith in God. In Mark chapter 10, we just read this a few weeks ago. It's about the rich young ruler He comes to Jesus and he's got his life in order. He's ethically and morally a good man. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and come back and follow me. And the man walks away sad because he had so much possession that his heart was set on his possessions. And the disciples in awe turn and they say to Jesus, well, if this is the case, who then can be saved? Brothers and sisters, that man had everything in order. He had control. He had power. He had uh, some form of morality that was honorable. But he wasn't good enough to be saved. And the disciples saw it and knew it. And that's the reality of us as human beings, that when we walk in this life, if we don't see that we wholly are absent from the presence of God because of our sin and because there is nothing in us good that could ever do anything, and that if we think for a moment we control our destiny, then we are fools. And we get to a place where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, With man, yeah, that's impossible. They can never achieve it, but here's the beauty of the gospel. Have faith in God depend upon Him and His finished work upon the cross. Jesus is getting ready to, to see His disciples uh, flee from Him in utter chaos and fear, and they are, are going to wander in different directions with no sense of, of, of control because they are completely out of control. Out of control. And in the meantime of their complete lack of control and their, their, their fears and their struggles, Jesus is going to die on a cross for them in complete and utter control. And offer himself as a sacrifice that they so desperately need. So Jesus essentially looks at these disciples and says, you see this temple, it is like this tree. It has leaves, it is beautiful, but inside it is hollow. And it offers no hope. Our hope is in God. So my challenge the challenge that the Lord has given me is: What are the areas that I can depend on Him? And the answer is everything. What does that look like? Is it does it look like I, I'm still figuring it out? But ultimately, it's a recognition of my lack and His power. And I would hope that as we go from here, we don't go from here. I don't, I don't want, you know, my wife and I have talked about this. I'm not, I don't share this as, as something to gather sympathy or anything like that. I don't know what's going on. I might find out after this bone scan that there's nothing there. And that's perfectly great. But the reality is I have a God who is able, and I can trust Him. And I think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who come before uh, the king, and he says, you need to bow down or else we're going to throw you in this furnace. And they say to him, we are not careful to answer you in this. We know our God can deliver us, but if He does not, it doesn't matter. He doesn't need to deliver us to show His power and His greatness. But we trust Him. That is the reality for our lives. And we talk about children and dedicating them. We talk about uh, raising them up in the admonition of the Lord. There is nothing I have learned faster than I need to depend on the Lord for my children. Because every single day I'm like, man, yeah, I really stink at this parenting thing. And we have to depend on Him. And I wonder how often we have leaves that we put out Because we think we've got control. But the reality is there's no control. Because the reality is God is the only one in control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you are so good. We thank you that you are the one who controls all things. We thank you that Apart from you, we can do nothing. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone in here today who is trusting in their own work. I pray that if there is anyone here today that, that thinks that they are good enough, that they would realize that that good enough is pitiful. And Father, I pray that all of us as a people would come to you to believe And to put our hope and our dependence upon you as the creator, sustainer, and savior. And Father, I pray that we would trust you and that we would find fruit through you. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. And we just ask that you would bless us this week that we might be a blessing. Father, would you help us to be more and more dependent upon you, to recognize that you are the one that we need, not anything that this world has to offer. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.